Welcome to Two Psychologists, Four Beers. I'm Yoel Inbar. With me here, as always, is my friend and co-host, Alexa Tollett. Alexa, how's it going? It's going well, Yoel. How are you? I'm just incredibly excited to introduce our guest, and therefore, fuck the chit-chat. We're not going to chit-chat. We're just going to go straight to the guest. We are extremely privileged to have with us today, today, ugh, God, why can't I talk? How do I co-host a podcast and I can't talk? Can you tell me <laughs> how that's possible? I mean... We get a lot of criticism for our inability to talk. We do. We do. Actually, we got a, get a lot of founded criticism about how bad we are at talking. Anyway, uh, we have Joe Simmons with us here today. Uh, I imagine that for many of our listeners, Joe Simmons won't need any introduction, uh, but I will introduce him anyway. He's a professor at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, he studies the psychology of judgment and decision-making, but his other main research area is identifying and promoting easy-to-adopt research practices that improve the integrity of published findings. Joe is a co-author of the Data Collada blog. Uh, he's a co-founder of aspredicted.org, a website uh, that makes it really easy to pre-register studies. He's also the first author of the 2011 paper of false positive psychology in psych science. I actually checked today. It is, it's not only the most highly cited paper ever in psych science. It's actually more than twice as highly cited as the next most highly cited paper. Joe, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. We have a lot to talk about, but I always forget about beers, and we got to get the beers out of the way and talk about what we're drinking and so on. And as the guest, you get to go first. So what have you got picked out? So when you guys invited me on here, I thought they're trying to get me drunk and have me talk about fraud. Like, like no way am I allowing that to happen. So I'm drinking uh, Waterloo Black Cherry Seltzer Water. Oh, no. Uh, tonight. Sneaky. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Seriously? You, this, you, you are not doing this to me. That doesn't not, even, it doesn't have vodka in it or anything? It doesn't have vodka in it. It's not like, yeah, yeah. It's just seltzer water. Um, look, I might switch to whiskey midway through, and that's because I hate whiskey. So I can't possibly get drunk uh, on whiskey. Um, but, but right now, I need, my, I need my seltzer water. I'm also in very, very... Uh, limited amount of sleep. So. Oh yeah, right. Uh, you you have a newborn, which makes it all the more remarkable that you're willing to do this for us. Yeah, I mean, it, my my wife is making this possible. She's up upstairs in in our bedroom with the baby. So, well, yeah. thank you, Christina, and but also thank you um, for fitting us in at just about the worst possible time for you, um, Alexa. I hope that you're drinking a milkshake again. Uh, I have a another like weird circumstance so i'm again not exactly following the rules so today um i had like a weird schedule where i didn't have much time between being at school and coming home i had a meeting before this and so i went and i grabbed some indian food um and as i was there i was like oh i have a brilliant idea i'll just like get a kingfisher beer um and i'll bring it home for the podcast um but as you may know, if you've ever been to a restaurant, you're not allowed to buy a beer at a restaurant and take it with you. Um, so I like bought this beer. It was like kind of a, like I was getting to go stuff and they had a fridge. And so it was like created the illusion that I could just grab a beer from the fridge and take it with me. Um, so then I had purchased this beer, but I couldn't take it with me. So I had to like chug it basically while I was waiting for my takeout. Um, so that's like, that was my beer number one. Um, but I'm going to open a second beer now and probably nurse it for the podcast. Um, and this is an AOK IPA uh, from Avondale Brewing, which is in Birmingham, Alabama. 
Nice. Well, I appreciate that you started ahead of time. Mickey actually very often would do that. He'd just show up kind of drunk already. So you're really <laughs> following in his footsteps here. Um, I have a milkshake IPA uh, from the brewery Vox Populi, which I think I've had on the show before and I really enjoyed. So I saw it on the shelf today and I was like, oh yeah, I should try something new, but instead I'm just going to go with the thing that I know I like. So yeah, I'm doing that. I have not been pre-drinking, um, but uh, yeah, let's uh, let's crack them open, shall we? Hmm. Yum. So I'm going to get right to it. Um, we wanted to talk about fraud today, and this is something, a topic that I've been sort of mulling over for a while, and I was trying to think about the right way to do it. Um, and as I was thinking about this, I, I remembered, Joe, your talk that you gave at, I think, the first ever, ever uh, SIPS conference, the Society for the Improvement of Psychological Science. Yeah. And I, I think this was in 2016. Is that right? I, I don't recall exactly what year it was, but it was it was definitely in Charlottesville. Yeah, I it think was, that that's right. You think that's right, Alexa? Were you yeah. at that one? I was, and I think that's the first time that I ever saw Joe Simmons in real life. Wow! Um, so it's a pretty memorable moment for me, actually. <laughs> I mean, I do like I did really remember that talk. Like I was like, um, yeah, I really liked it. Yoel came up to me after that talk. I uh, I will not forget it. He'll be like wow, you really don't give a shit anymore, do you? <laughs> and I was like, it was that bad, huh? It's like that, that, that put the fear of God in me. And I knew, I, I knew immediately I'd made a grave error. So, so here's how I remember the talk. Um, so this is obviously uh, the, the first meeting of these like very well-intentioned science reformers. They all really care about fixing psychological science. And it's sort of a buzz with this energy of we can do all this stuff. I think that was the SIPS meeting where uh, badges for psychological science, the journal, were first discussed, right? People get a badge for posting their data and pre-registering and so on. And it really had this energy of we can really like improve things. And then Joe gave a talk that, as I remember it, basically was like, Fraud happens. We don't know how much, but there's a lot more than you want to believe. And I have no idea what to do about it. And my memory is that that did not go over well, that everybody sort of shuffled out mournfully. Um, Joe, is that how do you remember that talk? Yeah, I mean, the part of the talk was that everybody PX. And then the other part of the talk was that this thing fraud that we long thought like doesn't happen, d does happen. And I thought it was the right forum to bring up to, I basically thought I was amongst friends because of the nature of the conference. And so I thought I could talk sort of frankly about this issue and say like, I would like to, cause part of the conference that was really cool. It was like this brainstorming conference, like trying to solve problems. And so I thought I'd throw out there this problem of fraud, which I, I, I mean, it's really hard to solve. And so I thought maybe we could discuss it. But, but instead, I, I got the vibe that I was like, I was the negative Nancy in the room and, and people did not like it. Um, I mean, I thought, that, I thought that SIPS was going to be this, I mean, it might be today, I haven't really been involved, but I, th I thought it was going to be a bunch of people, a bunch of like people who were really into, you know, the criticism aspect of science, the necessary, polite criticism, the professional criticism aspect of science. And instead, it seemed like, no, we're here to kind of be nice to each other. And um, we, we don't want to bring up this taboo topic. That was, I mean, no one said those exact words to me. That was like 
that was like the lesson I took away from that. And I, I, I immediately regretted giving that talk. And uh, yeah, so I, I don't think it was, I don't think it was helpful. Do you think that the uh, audience thought that you were overestimating the instance of fraud or like, w- yeah, why were people, were people just like upset that you had said the word fraud or w- did they think like, oh, this guy thinks we're all shitheads and he's so cynical? I, I don't know. Um, I, 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 th- I took it as he was just being too negative. Like we're here to like cheer each other on. We're not here to like talk about how we all pee hack and talk about how, talk about what we should do to like prevent fraud. I mean, anytime you talk about preventing fraud, it gets into the business of, wait, you're saying like, don't trust each other. And it's tricky because like as a society, we sort of want to trust each other and it feels bad to not trust our friends, right? Like you need to have relationships that are founded in trust. On the other hand, like science is kind of about not trusting, or it's at least about not accepting, you know, uh, not accepting at face value that everything is okay. Um, but yeah, so I just got the vibe that I was just being a bit too negative in a context where everyone was like stoked to be really positive. And do you feel like that's changed over the last five years? Now, when you talk about fraud, do you get a different reaction from people? Um, I think I talk about fraud differently now than I, than I did then. I think I, I'm a little, when I talk in public about it, I'm a little bit more measured and I think I have a better introduction to it than I did then. Like that was my first time talking about it in public really. And so I think I also just probably didn't do a good job. Um, um, so, and I, I really try to make sure I distinguish it from, you know, p-hacking. Cause I think sometimes if, if those two things are blended together, then it sort of makes it sound like everybody might be committing fraud. If I'm saying everyone commits p-hacking or everyone is prone to p-hacking, and then you think fraud and p-hacking are in the same bin, which I do not, um, then you can imagine really taking umbrage at anything I say about fraud. So I, I think I've been much better at you know, making sure that those two things seem distinct. And then I think what's also helped is like there's just been some, there's been more fraud that's been caught. And so at some level, you have to, you have to accept that, hey, this is, uh, th- th- this is not just Diedrich Stoppel did this and nobody else did it. This is like, this is a thing that, that is happening and it's a thing that we need to, we need to start taking seriously. It's interesting because fraud feels to me like, like, um, like people love talking about, uh, really rich people and shitting on really rich people. And it makes the rest of us feel like good about ourselves, even if we're sort of rich, you know, and you'd think that fraud would be a topic like that. Um, but I mean, I guess we'll get into the, the prevalence of fraud, but maybe, Maybe people are not receptive to talks about fraud because more people are committing fraud than we think. Yeah, and I do think they like gossiping about it. So, so like people will attend to talk about fraud. They just might not like the speaker at the end of it. <laughs> so, <I see. laughs> so they're interested in it, um, but they might think that the speaker is sort of, they, they, you know, they might think that I am basically saying that it's a bigger, bigger issue than it actually is. I mean, to me, it's a way bigger issue than I used. To. I mean, I thought it was zero. Um, and I now lo- no longer think it's it's zero. So. so you mentioned a minute ago being really careful to say what's fraud and what's not. So p-hacking, um, basically taking advantage of analytic flexibility in order to produce findings that are significant. Um, that's not fraud by your definition. So, so what is? I mean, fraud is fully conscious. It's fully conscious corruption, essentially. 
like it is making up data or changing data, knowing full well what you're doing in order to produce the desired result. And p-hacking is not that. P-hacking is motivated reasoning. I mean, look, p-hacking can be conscious, like but good, good luck telling the difference. And so p-hacking is basically motivated reasoning. You, you run a lot of analyses and you talk yourself into believing that the one that produces the most desirable result is the right result. And you can do that because there's ambiguity in terms of what analysis is actually appropriate. So that's motivated reasoning. That's unconscious bias. And um, fraud is fraud is fully conscious bias. And so they're two different problems and, they're, they're, and they require very different solutions. So if p-hacking is motivated reasoning, I mean, motivated reasoning is a function of the desire to draw a particular conclusion, which you're not going to get rid of in science. People always want to find significant results. Well, and it's a function of ambiguity and how to reach those conclusions. And that's where pre-registration targets that ambiguity part, right? So you, you, by having to specify your analysis in advance, there's no, now you can't try many analyses and talk yourself into the right one. It's fixed. So motivated reasoning is a function of desire and ambiguity. We fix the ambiguity. We fix p-hacking. Um, but fraud is different because fraud is conscious corruption. Fraud is stealing. And how do you stop stealing? Well, you increase the probability of getting caught. You increase the, you increase the punishments if you do get caught. I mean, that's like old school policing. And so they're very different. They're, ve- they're very, very different things, and they require these different kinds of solutions. So I basically totally agree with you. Um, but I do want to like just focus for a second on the kind of corner cases because I think sometimes people get hung up on them. Right. So if you go looking for outliers and you drop the outliers that get you beneath 0.05, that I guess is not fraud. If you don't put in the paper that you dropped them, well, I don't know. It, it, that I would say is fraud, but. I, I think some people might think of that as just really aggressive p-hacking. Yeah, I was going to say, like, I mean, I wonder if since we have come to have a better understanding of, of p-hacking since 2011, um, are there some things that, like, originally we would have categorized as p-hacking that we might now consider fraud? So, like, for instance, if somebody had run the study from the... 2011 false positive psychology paper like if somebody did a study dropped conditions didn't report them um you know picked a significant result uh you know excluded people strategically all of these things that um that i think we would categorize as p-hacking but we now have so much reason to we have so much better appreciation for the consequences of these things we basically know that that there's you know, uh, a very high risk that that will yield a false positive result. Do those things start to become fraud as we're sort of more informed about the consequences of them? Or would you still draw the line on the other side? I, I mean, possibly. Like, it, I mean, once you're doing things consciously like that, it's certainly unethical. Mm-hmm. But, but from, I mean, I, I'm mostly interested in this from a policy standpoint around like, what do we do to solve the problem? And I think that pre-registration solves the problems that you guys just described. Now, once people are lying, like explicitly lying about dropping outliers, like if they don't, mm-hmm. if they drop outliers and explicitly don't mention it because it gets them in trouble, you know, then I think we are more 
then we're in the game of fraud. Right. And so, but yeah, p-hacking can, of course it can be intentional, but in terms of the policy solutions to it, um, I think, I think it's, it's kind of the same, whether it's intentional or not. If you, if you force people to specify in advance what their key analysis looks like, they can't do it even if they want to do it intentionally. Right. Yeah. The example that I gave would, would amount to fraud at this point, because you'd have to lie in order to execute that example, I guess. Yeah, I think so. Okay, here's one, because I can't fucking help myself. I'm such a like pedantic nitpicker. One that's not covered by pre-registration. Um, so on the Data Colada blog, people might know, you did a series of replications of recent papers in, in marketing, right? That's right. Um, and, and one of those papers, in the materials, there was, if you're being kind, you could call it a giant confound. If you're being more harsh, you could say they just told them how to respond and then didn't put that in the write-up. And that's not fixable by pre-registration. Like, what do you call that? Yeah, so when when I've given talks on this stuff, like the last time, I gave a talk in SPSP 2020 right before the world ended. And um, I basically had three categories, p-hacking, fraud, and hidden confounds. And I called that a hidden confound, where basically embedded in the materials it was undisclosed but embedded in the materials was an instructional difference between conditions that was effectively responsible for the result and that's not great right because no reader of the paper unless they have access to those materials which were not posted to my recollection i think we asked for them and then they gave them to us um, no, no reader of that paper could see that they and so it looked like the difference was driven by some kind of prime, but actually the difference was driven by some very explicit instruction that was that, that I think made the finding pretty uninteresting. And I think that's bad. <laughs> now, it could be that that instructional difference was forgotten. And so it could, it could be that it was done, it wasn't done out of, it wasn't done intentionally and it wasn't, and no one remembered it because, like, how often do you pour through your Qualtrics files after you run your studies? Um, so, so I don't know, like, how unethical it is. But there, the solution is a little different. I mean, the solution there is like post your, post your goddamn materials, which I mean, there has never, ever in the history of the world been a good argument against that, against requiring people to post their materials. Mm -hmm. And yet, here's where we are. Where nobody requires it still, but that's yeah. So th that's a different ballgame. But I agree. Like if that was done very intentionally, it's super unethical, and maybe you even want to use the F word for it. I don't know, but but I don't know if it was done intentionally. That's not. We didn't get into that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think these kind of uh, ambiguous cases are fun to argue about because yeah, you have these different intuitions about them, and they uh, they're sort of intellectually interesting, but. Most of the fraud that's been uncovered um, has just been way more blatant, right? It's people make up a data set or they alter a data set and uh, change their responses such that they conform to the hypotheses. So I wonder if you would mind, um, one of the reasons fraud is more on the minds of people in psychology right now is because of a recent high-profile uh, fraud case. So uh, 2012 paper in uh, PNAS, uh, the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. 
Uh, there was a paper in published in that journal in 2012 called Signing at the Beginning Makes Ethics Salient and Decreases Dishonest Self-Reports in Comparison to Signing at the End. What that purported to show was that if you have people uh, sign sort of an honor pledge before they self-report something, they're more honest in doing the self-reporting. And that that paper was very influential. It's been cited about 450 times, according to Google Scholar. It's, I've heard been the basis of actual policy interventions that governments have tried to do uh, to increase honest responding. And the data Colada blog recently revealed that one of the studies in that paper, just those data can't have been collected as described in the paper, let's say. Uh, but Joe, I wonder if you would mind kind of giving our listeners uh, the background on how this happened, um, what you guys did to determine that the data weren't real, and, and what the reaction has been like. Yeah, so um, study three of that paper, probably the study that got the paper published in such a high-profile journal, um, was a field experiment conducted in collaboration with an auto insurance company. And basically, they had over 13,000 customers, and they sent them forms uh, on which they were supposed to report their odometer readings on their cars. And the idea here is that insurance companies want to know how much you drive. And if you drive a lot, your premiums go up. If you drive less, your premiums go down or stay the same, whatever. But they're lower if you drive less. And so the idea is that people might be motivated to report dishonestly that they didn't drive very much, right? Because then their premiums don't go up. And so all they did was they sent the forms to 13,000 customers ostensibly and they either signed at the top of the form saying that they were pledging to report honestly, or they signed at the bottom of the form saying they were intending to report honestly. And the finding was, was basically that people were much more likely to report, um, to report having driven more miles and therefore more honestly when they signed at the top than when they signed at the bottom. So that was the, and the idea that this was done in a field experiment with, thir- you know, with 13,000 customers, I mean, it just kind of showed that this thing could be, the other two experiments were done in the lab uh, in the paper. And so it sort of showed that this could be done for real in the real world. And it is the reason, undoubtedly, why a lot of policymakers decided to give this a shot. So it's a pretty important experiment. I mean, I remember teaching this experiment to my MBA students. Um, I don't know for how many years I did that, but I definitely did it at least once. Because um, it seemed like such a cool little intervention to get people to report uh, more honestly. But um, it turns out that, that the data in that study are fraudulent. Um, probably the study was run in some capacity. We don't know for sure. But it looks like at least half of the data was just made up. And it looks like the, the key dependent variable, which is the, the difference between the odometer reading during the experiment and the odometer reading that was on file, it looks like it looks like basically the key dependent variable, their time to mileage readings, were, was just totally fabricated. They just used RAM between zero fifty thousand in Excel. I mean, it's just like, I mean, and, and we you could you could know that by just looking at the distribution of miles reported on those odometer readings, because it was it was basically a perfect rectangle. It was a perfect uniform distribution. So what that basically implies is that people were equally likely to report driving 500 miles as 1,000 miles, as 5,000 miles, as 10,000 miles, as 20,000, as 
50,000. I mean, that's just not what people do. Like if you look at normal driving data, like most people in the US, like they drive about 12,000 miles a year. And it's obviously like, you know, it's a skewed distribution uh, where there's, there's a few stragglers who drive a whole lot, but mostly it's, you know, it's peaked around 10 to 12,000. And it looks like a, it looks like a, a normal-ish distribution. Um, it definitely doesn't look uniform. Uniform is crazy. And the other thing that was really striking is that it just ended at 50,000. Like it was like a perfect rectangle that just stopped abruptly at 50,000. And it didn't look like there was any mechanical reason for that. Like the data weren't Windsorized at 50,000 or anything like that. Um, and by the way, this was all pointed out to us by some anonymous collaborators who, they're the ones who discovered that fact that I just described. And they shared it with us in the hopes that we would help them do something about it. So it's not like we made that discovery. Um, that discovery was made by others. Um, and, then, and then we started digging through the data set and we found other markers of fraud and made us certain that it was fraudulent. So just to be clear, the, uh, these folks who found this original anomaly, they were worried that if, if they went public with it, that there would be bad consequences for them? I would say they, they weren't worried about that. They, they knew that that would happen. <laughs> like like if, if you go public about fraud, you, people are going to hate your guts. Absolutely. And, and, and actually at the time, so, so we, we found out later um, during, during this process, we didn't know at the time they sent us the data, but we found out later once we looked at the um, properties of the Excel file that, was, that, that the data were contained within, um, that, this, that that Excel file was created by Dan Ariely. And there's, there's no way as untenured researchers, you should, be, you should be in the game of calling out fraud of such a big name. I mean, people don't like, people do not like you when you do this work. Were you hesitant, Joe, to, um, to follow up or to, to make these data public or um, given the negative consequences for people who do so? In this case, no. I mean, the other thing is that one thing that's helpful in this case, though frustrating, is we don't know who did it. So there are five authors on the paper. We know that Dan Ariely was the one that supervised the study along with the insurance company. Um, there's basically two plausible hypotheses. One is that Ariely faked the data. The other is that the insurance company, someone at the insurance company faked the data. Now I've seen people on Twitter say, well, that's come on. Like why would the insurance company fake the data? What's their motive for doing that? But it's not the insurance company itself. It's some guy or gal at the insurance company who might like okay, well, I, I screwed up. I didn't run the study properly. I know what Ariely wants. I want to maintain my relationship with him. So I want to, you know, I, I want to produce a good result. Like it's not completely crazy that that, that that kind of thing might happen. And so that actually was helpful for us going public because we're not going public. Our, our blog post is about how the data are fake, not about how someone is a fraudster, right? And that actually isn't, that, that is a very helpful distinction. Um, I think if we, would, if we would have known, for example, that some academic researcher was responsible for a fraud, and we've done this in other cases, if we'd known for sure that it's a, per, a single person, we usually, then, in that case, don't go public immediately. We go to universities. And if the universities do the right thing, then we don't need to go public. So that's sort of how we take care of that. But in this case, it was a little easier because we weren't saying... We weren't saying that Ariely did this. We were just saying the data are fake. And that's what we're still saying, because we don't know. In either case, um, can the, maybe, 
maybe you don't know the answer to this. Can the fraud be explained by, so would you be able to explain the pattern of results if somebody, let's say this person at the insurance company had said, oh, I lost this data. I'm going to create whatever, whatever it is, 13,000 cases or something like that. Um, and, uh, I'm going to use a random number generator to create them, create this second or this, basically the dependent variable, this, this second odometer reading, and then send it to Ariely. So would that account for what happened or is there more like strategy involved in the creation of the numbers? So it doesn't fully account for it because you need the condition differences. So one thing that our blog post did not answer was that question. Like how, how are the condition differences generated? So we now know the answer to that. We didn't when we wrote our blog post. So we, we've had some people reach out to us who are also interested in trying to figure out what happened here. Um, some non-academics. And they've given us some helpful tips that we may or may not ever go public with. Um, but I think the thing I will say here, I think that Lathan Yuri would allow me to say, is that we now know that the entire effect is driven by 650 observations, and we know that the, we know which observ, we know which observations they are, and basically they just change the condition labels. So they went from sign beginning to sign end, and we and we now know what. It, so so somebody had to bother to do that. And there is in the blog post. There's a mention of changing condition labels, right? Like an email exchange between one of the authors and Ariely asking. Right. So that's separate. That's basically that when our, so Dan Ariely sent the data to Nina Mazar and Nina Mazar at the time was his, was a postdoc working for him. And so he sent her the data in 2011. Like, I mean, he has been, he had been talking publicly about this finding since 2008, but he sent her the data in 2000, in 2011 and she basically reanalyzed it. And then she came back to him and was like, uh, the results in the wrong direction. And he said, oh, the, when I was making the data set nice for you, the condition labels, I accidentally flipped them. So sign beginning was really sign end and sign end was really sign beginning. So that's that. That's separate from like in the data file, we sort of know that there's these 650 observations of, of, out of 13,400 and some that were changed. Okay. So you said a minute ago, look, if you make this sort of an accusation, even if it's true, people are going to hate you. And yet, maybe it's who I happen to follow on Twitter. I saw nothing but praise. Like, this is an incredible investigation. The data Colada people are doing such a service. Some people saying, what's the story that these junior people have to try remain anonymous because they fear the consequences? So do you think that there's a difference there between what people say are willing to say in public and what some other people maybe actually think? Or what's the... Yeah. I mean, I think in this case, I think it worked out. I mean, we were, we were nervous about it, but I think in this case, because it was ambiguous enough, um, we are very, very careful to simply just report facts. Like we, I mean, I can't tell you how many times we poured over this thing, making sure. And, and we also give feedback from the authors to make sure that we're not snarky. You know, we're not speaking out of term. We're not saying, especially in these cases, I mean, you really don't want to be wrong. And I also think in this case, like Dan Ariely is a, you know, he's a famous guy and 
you know, he, it, it doesn't feel like we're bullying in this case, right? So we've been accused of bullying in the past or some version of that. And in this case, like, there's no bullying of somebody like Dan Ariely. And also, you know, we're not accusing Dan Ariely. We're, we're just saying that, we're just saying the data, the data themselves uh, happen to be fake. So I agree. In this case, it actually worked out. I do think that in the field, like, like, yeah, publicly, I think most people were even like grateful. It was definitely the best reaction we've ever gotten from something like this. And we really appreciated that. But in the field, um, I think there are people who are still privately unhappy about it. And knowing who's, I've heard some things through the grapevine and knowing who some of those people are, it is very smart that the anonymous people are anonymous. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's almost like the the people that maybe some of the people that matter the most are the people who are going to be less enthusiastic about this, about this enterprise. Right. I'd also guess that, um, the three of you, um, you and your life, uh, maybe this works against you or for you. It seems like in this case, um, you had an, like enough established credibility that, um, you got a pretty positive reaction. I'm not, I wouldn't be surprised if the reaction had been different if, I don't know who the anonymous researchers are, obviously, yeah. but like if somebody else had come out and said this, especially other people who maybe like don't have the the same reputation or the same big names or something like that. I mean, I can easily see people's reaction being like, who do you think you are? You know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, we might've, there might've been some benefit, uh, benefit of that, uh, to us, um, given that we've been in this game for a while and, and even though people don't, some people don't like us for being in this game for a while, we haven't been wrong about it. Like we've not been wrong about fraud. Um, and we would never, I mean, we, I, I, I hope that I die never being wrong about fraud because our threshold for calling something fraudulent is extremely, extremely high. And so we only, we only would write something like this if we were hundred percent certain and we're not hundred percent certain. We're very far from hundred percent certain about who did it. So we would never come out and say, you know, who did it in this case. And I want to be very clear on this podcast. I do not know who did it. And I think it is, it is quite plausible that it is not Ariely and that it is the insurance company more plausible than people on social media have been suggesting that it might be. Um, but yeah, so I think we have a track record of being right about these things. And even if you don't like us for pursuing it and you think like, why are these guys spending their time doing this? It's, you can't come and you can't basically make the argument that we're wrong. That that we've been wrong in the past because we haven't been. So, why are you doing this? <laughs> <laughs> At best, it's neutral, oh, right? Because he just really doesn't give a shit anymore. You will. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's like we wrote false positive psychology because I mean, we I was thirty three years old, Leif and Yuri a little older, and like, I mean, I've been p hacking. I've been trained to p hack up to that point, but we write this thing like effectively like blowing the whistle on the field. Not because we thought, I mean, that paper wound up helping me, but like, I didn't think it was necessarily going to, I mean, mostly we thought it was going to be ignored, but then once it didn't get ignored, um, I I definitely didn't think it was going to help me, but it was, but it's just the kind of thing. It's like, if you just think about like what 
what are we doing for a living and what does it mean and what do I want it to look like? And like, if you're in a field where you just let fraud happen, like what the hell are we even doing here? Like, am I just like getting a paycheck and until I retire? Like, is that my, is that what I've just signed up for? Like, I know like that's, that's a very fortunate position to be in. And a lot of people aren't in that position, but I, I really want more than that. Like I really believe in science. And I think that if you believe in science, then y- you need to sort of crack down on bad behavior. Like one frustrating argument I've heard over the years is like, well, who, who made you data police, right? Like that you always hear that kind of argument. And if you, if you just think about it for like four seconds, like it's, it's such an absurd thing. Cause like, if I said, if I basically said, well, okay, well, wait, nobody made me data police. Therefore I should take this to the data police. And then you look around and you're like, well, there there's no data police. Like maybe, maybe Nick Brown is data police. I take it to Nick Brown. <laughs> but, then, but then people ask Nick Brown, well, wait, who made you data police, Nick Brown? Nobody made you data police. And then you're like, it's, it's absurd. So then there's no cops. Like there, there's absolutely no police. And actually, th- that's the wrong way to think about it because you, you should actually think about it as the opposite. When you sign up to be a scientist, you are the data police. <laughs> we are all data police. And we all have a responsibility to make sure that we are checking other people's work. And I think that when you find fraud, I mean, how can you, I I can't really sleep at night by like just letting it go, especially if it's provable. Like I have walked away from cases where I was, I personally was pretty convinced it's fraud, but it's not provable. And it's like, okay, well, if it's not provable, I'm not going to spend my time on this. But if it's provable fraud and you're tenured, I mean, what, that's the other thing. Like, what is tenure for? Like, you got to just, you got to do it. When you think about how we sell science to the public, I, I've been talking in, in a couple of my undergraduate classes and, and graduate classes about um, the issue of, of whether we should trust science and when we should trust science. And one of the arguments for trusting science is essentially like scientists are checking up on each other. Like, you don't have to appeal to one authority figure because it's a community of authority figures. And the way that this is described by people is like um, people who are advocating for the merits of science and the trustworthiness of science is that they're saying like scientists are really hard on each other. They like really critique each other. And like, if you convince a scientific community that an effect is real, then that's like a really high bar. And sometimes I read these things and I'm like, really? Like, are we that, (laughs) are we that critical? I think we're like, I mean, the way that you described SIPS at the beginning, and I, I don't think that SIPS is the guiltiest of this. It's like, we're also like a bunch of people who are just all friends and patting each other on the back all the time, you know? No, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And so I think like, and also like, I mean, in my case in particular, like with me, Leif and Yuri, it's like, we're, we've been in the game now for 10 years of like looking at basically doing like statistical forensics. And so for, for us to walk away seems even worse because it's like, well, we're kind of well positioned to, to do this stuff. Um, but it's certainly not what we signed up for. Like I never thought that I would be in the, the fraud game. Like that was like, yeah. I mean, I thought fraud was zero in 2011. I definitely mm-hmm. didn't think it would keep coming up. And, and it has. Like, there's been almost a continuous stream of work on it um, for the last decade almost. Do you encounter any like junior scientists who are interested in prioritizing this as part of their... Maybe that's a silly question, but I think there's a lot of people who are interested in, in the process of like 
forensics and like figuring out mysteries and things like that. Um, does anybody come to you and they're like, I want to be a, a data police? Um, I've had like students who are really interested in it. I basically tell them like, no, <laughs> like, like you can be interested in that when you get tenure, <laughs> but, um, you know, I, and like, I, I mean, there's there's statistical forensics that are like helpful in a reviewer capacity right so like i think that all students should be taught how to do this but i think that to be publicly to, to be a public face of of this these kinds of investigations i think is it's very risky again like like as you said with the Ariely case we definitely we definitely got if anything we got accolades like we didn't get we we were not harmed by this recent by this recent case um, but it's very risky. Like you, you definitely can be harmed and you don't, you know, when, when these blog posts go live or whatever, when you, you know, when we press send, it's like really, I'm really nervous because you just don't know how it's going to go. Like maybe you made a mistake. I mean, we, we try to get to the point where we, we know we didn't make a mistake, but you know, it's, it's a pretty scary thing. So I think like young people should just, I mean, it's, I think what the anonymous folks have done here, like to to come to us um, and yeah, get help that way, I think was, was pretty smart. And if they also wanted to be like the second, you know, they want it, they want their names out to get credit. Um, we, we, we will obviously do that. So like they can get credit later um, for this to the, and, and you, they could decide later, wait, this didn't go well. I don't want credit for that. You know, this one went well, I want credit for that. That's fine. Right. So like they can kind of see how it played out before they they let their names be uh, be known. So they always have a chance to get credit down the road. So I think it's sort of better to to I think it's better to sort of not not have your name attached to this if you're if you're junior. So you mentioned that, you know, people bring you stuff, uh, uh, I guess, because you're you're known for you have this reputation now of of knowing what to do here. And I'm just, I mean, it's not often that this happens. Yeah. Well, that was going to be my question. Like what, what are the numbers? Like how often is somebody coming to you with something where they're like, I think this looks bad. And then of those, what percentage does it end up being that you end up getting in contact with the university and saying, Hey, this, like, this is really something you should look into. And then what happens typically? Like, does the university do anything? Do they just, I don't know, uh, try and make it go away quietly? Like what's the typical case? Yeah, I mean, I, I think this is actually the first time we've pursued something based purely on like this anonymous tip kind of thing. Um, but we've definitely had them. But a, a lot of people, their bar for thinking that something might be fraud, or at least their bar for emailing us to say that, which is fair enough, their bar is a bit lower than ours. So like, again, it, it can't just be you pretty sure it's fraud. Like it has to be provable fraud. And we have to be 100% sure. You make one false accusation in this business, your reputation is ruined. And also you've just harmed somebody, like in a real way. And so you have to be just so careful. And so our threshold for pursuing any of these things is always just really high. Um, yeah, so, so it, hasn't happened, it hasn't happened that often. There's been a lot of, there have been a fair number that have been sort of self-instigated like we've noticed stuff or maybe or maybe like someone just made an offhanded comment to us about like you know these these papers look kind of they look kind of fishy and then we bother to like look into them and then we see oh wait there there's real evidence here 
that this might be fraudulent and then we'll sort of pursue it. And then, yeah, we've taken some of it to universities and universities try their best to protect themselves more than they try to do anything else. Um, it's not like, I mean, I, I remember like thinking at the beginning when we first started working on fraud stuff, when Yuri got involved in two cases in 2011 and we were sort of helping him in the background with them. I remember thinking that this is going to go down like the Stoppel case where like, you know, Tilburg University basically was like, stop everything. We're doing this gigantic public investigation. We're going to write this big report. We're going to really own this and we're going to use this as a chance to get better. And it's like, that is just not the way we do things here in the United States of America at our top universities. So everything is hush-hush. In some cases, the university investigates, papers are retracted, usually not for the reason, not for the explicit reason of fraud. Um, But usually what we tell them is that we want papers retracted. Like that's like the number one thing we want. And um, they, yeah. Uh, mostly, I think in the cases where we've gone to universities, they've, they've done that. They've retracted papers. And I think in part because they think that we're going to write about it on data colada, they don't. Um, but, um, but I don't know if that's actually what's going on, but they definitely don't do anything public. Like, yeah. I don't, I obviously didn't understand when I was at Tilburg, how unusual that response was right i don't think anybody did uh but it's just the dutch are just they're just pathologically honest or something it was great i really wish and i actually think that i mean maybe this is a self-serving argument because i just care so much about this but i think that universities are just being very myopic in how they deal with this like i think they should just i think they should be publicly investigating these cases that that happen. And then I think that they would develop brands around like, okay, we're the, we're the university that if you're, if you're a fraudster, you better not come here. (laughs) Like we're not going to, we're not going to put up with this. Um, but mostly they just want to avoid scandals. Right. So, yeah, I mean, this could be a whole nother episode, but I've, my impression is that particularly in the U S university administrators are focused really myopically on short-term reputational harm prevention to the exclusion right. of all, like anything else. Mm-hmm. I think that's right. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I need another beer. Alexa, how are you doing? Uh, I, I can take a break. Wait for you to get can, a beer. Can, can we take a break? I can get a beer. Joe can get himself another I'll get pistol. a beer. All I'll right. Beer. All right. Yeah. Not even whiskey, like a beer. No, I'll get a beer. It's, it's, it's late enough that I probably won't say anything too, damp, too damning. Police 
Welcome back. This is the part of the show where I tell you how to contact us. So we're on Twitter at Four Beers Pod. You can at mention us. You can DM us, and uh, I at least will see it. If you'd like to email us, uh, the show's email address is fourbeerspod at gmail.com. That will go to all of us. Finally, our website is fourbeers.com, where you can find our back catalog of episodes. You can also drop us a line there as well. If you like, if you're enjoying this show, uh, please do take a minute to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Uh, it just helps people discover the show. Alexa, did I leave anything out? No, that sounds good. Sweet. All right. Well, I want to get back into it, but we do have to do beer talk real quick. Um, and Joe Simmons has obtained uh, a a very exotic microbrew for for the second half. You want to yes, explain? This beer, this beer is... Uh... It is advertised on the label as being a fine Pilsner beer, and it is called Miller Lite. And it, uh, it, it reminds me of home. Yeah, I used to drink this a lot in Baltimore, um, and it reminds me of there. I, I know the beer is not produced in Baltimore. I'm, I should be drinking Natty Bow, but instead I'm, I'm drinking Miller Lite. Luckily, there was one of these in the fridge. Everything else in my fridge is like 10% alcohol Belgian beer that my friends have brought over. So, um, so, so I'm going with the old school Miller Lite. I'm uh I'm still drinking my AOK because of my previous pre-drinking. I have I haven't I haven't had this beer before. It's called Attack Galactique. It's an IPA from uh L'Espace Public, which is a brewery from around here that I've I've had some of their other beers and they've been good. So, yeah, I'm excited to try it. Basically, we either offend Mickey by um not drinking beer or drinking light beer. Or by mispronouncing French beers. Yeah. Yeah. He's been giving me so much shit. I actually, I feel like my pronunciation is slightly improving, but I'm sure he'll email us and be like, that was terrible. <laughs> L'espace public. It's really, it's, it's hard to say it right. French is a hard language. Mm -hmm. I agree. Yeah. Who knew? Indeed. All right. Let's see how this is. Hmm. Oh, I'm into it. All right. Thumbs up. Yeah. Mine, mine's nice and watery. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Um, Alexa, anything else we need to cover before we get back into it? Nope. I think we can get started. Actually, I would like to put a plug in for Yuri wants me to plug our, our sort of newest invention. Um, it's a website called research box. And on that website, um, you can sort of go there to, um, to post all of your materials, all of your data. It's really well organized. It's like really intuitive. It makes it easy to post both post your materials, but also for other people to access them. It, it sort of organizes everything in a really nice grid. And you can just try it out. So it's uh, researchbox.org. Yuri will be proud of me for doing that. Wow. Great plug. Uh, we will put a link in the show notes. I can independently endorse uh, ResearchBox. Um, you know, as as somebody who's been a longtime OSF user, uh, I'm not going to say it's hard to use, uh, but it's not easy to use. And I find research box to be very easy to use. I did tell my grad students too, like I was looking at an OSF page for one of our projects and I was like, I really thought that we created this file, but I can't find it anywhere. So we must have never created it. And I like told my grad students, like, you need to make this file. I asked you to do this months ago. And they were like, it's right there. Like in the spot that you weren't looking. So I'm not trying to um, criticize 
OSF because this could this could definitely be my shortcoming, but I couldn't find a file on my own OSF. <laughs> yeah, I think OSF is a little bit like R in that like if you figure out the right way to use it, it can work for you, but there's like a million non-obvious ways to do it wrong. And I, I've just like personally been the reviewer on a lot of papers where it's like, oh, I'd like to look at the pre-registration and the authors have not set the OSF permissions correctly and I can't look at it. It literally yeah. happens like every second paper, right? And I don't think these people are like terribly incompetent or anything. I think it's just too complicated. Um, and and this research box and as predicted, make these things a lot more straightforward. Yeah, that was the goal for sure. What I wanted to ask you about next is I guess it's a little like touchy, um, which is prevalence. So obviously any fraud is bad, right? Um, and I think we ought to care about it just on the basis of like, if any is slipping through, that's that's not good. And particularly if it's for these high profile papers that are attracting media attention, um, attracting uh, policymakers who are going to try and implement this stuff, it's really bad. But still, you know, you might say, well, we have some anecdotes here that are you know, salient and memorable, but maybe unrepresentative. So do you have any any feeling as to how prevalent fraud actually is in, let's just say, in psychology? In my neck of the woods in psychology, my, the estimate I've been throwing out is between 2 to 5% of papers. Not people, but 2 to 5% of papers. Now, a lot of fraudsters tend to be pretty prolific, I think, because it's easy easier to like generate your data. Now, like the issue of like, who cares? So, cause like maybe that's a small number. And so maybe we, we shouldn't really care, but if researchers are cutting corners, I mean, this is not only about fraud. It's also about P hacking. If researchers are cutting corners to get publications and that works, then the publication process will reward the researchers who cut corners <laughs> to get publications. And so what you wind up with is the opposite of survival of the fittest in terms of who is employed as a scientist. So the people who are slow and careful and like constantly checking their work and you know, they're, they're failing a lot because I mean, a lot of things don't work. Um, those people get, they, they don't make it, right? Or they're, they're way less likely to make it. Like they need, they need some positive luck. But definitely fraudsters, I mean, they don't need any luck at all. Like they can just they can just make it all up and then and and not and not only do they occupy the jobs, and people don't like us talking about it this way, but academia, academic jobs are zero sum. <laughs> if somebody has a job, that means someone else doesn't have that job. And that's just the that's just the way it works. And if you're effect, if you're basically cheating to get the job. That's bad. It means a non-cheater did not get that job. And so I think we really need to care about it, even if the, even if the prevalence isn't, if you, if you don't think it's you know, through the moon, I think it's still enough. Like if it was you know, one in a hundred or something, like, or sorry, one in a thousand or something like that, then maybe we wouldn't, wouldn't need to worry about it. But I think once you're getting, I think it's, I mean, I don't have great evidence for this, right? Because I don't know how to actually estimate the prevalence. But to me, like looking around, I notice fraud-like findings um, a fair bit, and um, I, th I think it's the kind of thing that we really need to to work on because 
it, it just messes up the incentives. And in addition to that, it also just messes up the incentives in terms of how to, like, like how many papers should you have when you go up for tenure, right? Like if, if someone is, if someone is on steroids, right? Like how do you, how do you get to match that person? Well, you have to take steroids yourself or you have to just have no life and work all the time or whatever. Like, it's just not, it just raises the bar for everyone else in a way that is, it's not sustainable if the goal of the enterprise is truth and accuracy. And I, I would like to think that the goal of the enterprise is truth and accuracy and that's what we should be rewarding. And so all of this stuff, like the reason I sort of care, care about all of it is that it just, it just seems like the entire incentive structure is screwed up if we're rewarding people who are publishing false findings um, as opposed to rewarding people who are publishing true findings. So tell me if this is wrong. Um, even psychology jobs, like um, tenured professor jobs, are pretty good jobs, right? Maybe you don't get paid a ton of money, but you get paid reasonably well. You have job security. Uh, you get to decide what you work on, et cetera. Uh, business school jobs have all of that. They have the downside that you have to teach MBAs, but you get paid a shit ton of money. And then on yep. top of that, you That's can right. do executive education. You can write books. You can, you know, if you get famous, you can give talks, whatever. So I think if it became widely known that there's effectively no formal defense against just making up your data and these jobs are super desirable, you would just be flooded with people making up their data because it's like leaving your money, you know, lying around. Like most people are honest, but you're going to attract yeah. those people who are most willing to be dishonest because the incentives are just too good. Is that wrong? No, it's exactly right. It's exactly right. Like, yeah, if, if people learn that fraud goes unpunished, then there'll be a lot more fraudsters. And it's not because the modal person who tries to get in this field is bad. It's because of the selection effects that you just described. The people who aren't fraudsters won't make it because they can't, be with the pe they can't compete with the people who are. And I don't think we're there. Like I, don't think we'll, like, I don't think we're at that level. But I think we have to make it so that fraud is scary to do. And so I just don't understand why we are not required to post our data. I mean, I get it, you know, and, and when I say required to post our data, I always mean that there should be exceptions that you can ask for, like if the data are proprietary, if the data are really sensitive so that, you know, anonymity will be compromised even if you try to anonymize the data. Like, obviously, there's going to be exceptions. But for the 99% of cases that are, not, that are not those exceptions, like why on earth in science are you not required to post your data. And I think if you're required to post your data and you know there are people out there like us and, and these anonymous sleuths and you, Yoel, and like, and, and, you know, Nick Brown and Joe Hilgard and, you know, James Heathers and all these people out there who are looking, I think you'll, you know, if you want to, if you want to make money, you might, you might go do something else. You know, if you think like you might actually get caught and I don't think this will solve the problem. But without it, I feel like the problem could potentially run rampant. Like you, people need to feel like there might be consequences if they commit fraud. And I think for a long time, they've felt pretty like, I think the average fraudster could have felt pretty safe that they would never be caught. And that's really bad. 
I mean, there's lots of reasons that people post their data, I should say, not only to catch fraudsters, but also to catch errors, right? And like just to make sure that things are okay. And errors are obviously way more common than fraud. So there's other good reasons to post data too, but it seems like just so ridiculous that as a field, we don't have that standard in place. Um, you mentioned uh, an estimate for the prevalence of fraud, like something between two to 5%. I assume this is like a combination of the um, prevalence that you are already confident of, like cases that have been identified. And then perhaps some cases, like you mentioned that um, sometimes you are pretty confident that something is fraud, but you can't prove it. Um, and then I'm imagining there also might be a category of like, you uh, hypothesize that there are some people who are committing fraud who either you never encounter or you wouldn't be able to detect it. Um, I guess I'm wondering more about how you came to that number and how much like uncertainty you're incorporating. I, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a gut feeling, basically, based on, based on what I've seen. But it's not 1%. I mean, I feel very confident being like it's higher than 1%. Mm-hmm. Um, like just perusing like table of contents and things like that. Um, I'm not really accounting for, you know, one-off fraud that, you know, someone changes a few values in their spreadsheet to get right. their effect, to get their dissertation, and then never do it, never does it again. Um, I'm not sort of accounting for those because um, those would be really hard to spot. Mm-hmm. But um, I shouldn't give away anything that's hard to spot, but... I'll probably shut up about that now because I don't want like people listening to this and being like, how do I get away with it? Right, right. And do you feel like you can sometimes tell from titles or at least from like main findings? So there was one case where, um, there was one case of fraud, I won't get into the specifics, but um, that wasn't public, um, that we never went public with. But um, we, we knew from figure two, like that was it. Like, like, Leif sent me an email with a picture of figure two. I was like, oh, that's fake. And then, and then we looked at figure one, B, figure one, and it was like, that was also fake. And we know this just from years of understanding. I mean, we've really been in the business of trying to understand what does fake data look like and what does real data look like? And what does p-hack data look like? Mm-hmm. And they, they, they're very different signatures, and so there's some fraud that is so blatant. It's not like I'm claiming like a, we're like savants who can just like look at any figure and mm-hmm. tell you. It's that some fraud is just so blatant that you can just look at the results figure and be like, nope. And, and know also that it's not, it couldn't even be p-hacking. And so we started there with that investigation. And um, I mean, we never know from titles or abstracts. Mm-hmm. Like we know from, we know when we start to look at, you know, uh, results figures and results tables and p-values, you know, those kinds of things. They, they leave a signature, at least certain kinds of fraud. Like there, there could be other kinds of fraud that we're not detecting that don't leave those signatures, of course. Mm-hmm. But, there's, but, but like the blatant forms of fraud that we've, that we've sort of caught, um, it's, it's often fairly obvious to us. I mean, that's another reason. Why, why do we get into this business? Well, because we can't help but see it. It sort of just pops off the page sometimes to us because we're, we've been so, we've been, we sort of trained ourselves to, to look for it. Should that worry us that the instances of fraud that we're detecting seem almost stupidly blatant? Yeah. Yes. 
I mean, when I gave a talk on this at SPSB in 2020, I called it, I didn't call it fraud, I called it stupid fraud. Because like, that's what we're catching. Yeah, and so there, there's probably other forms um, of fraud that go undetected for sure. But I mean, I think the, the, the thing that, so, you know, will data posting help with that? I'm not sure. Um, maybe, maybe not. But the other thing that really helps is just doing replications. Because like, if, if your work is, is so consistently supports, you know, some interesting hypotheses and nobody else, when they do the same thing, nobody else can get the result. It, it, it looks bad for you. Even if, it, even if it won't result in a fraud accusation, it, it will result in people not believing the work and maybe not believing the person who's doing the work. And so I think that's a way to, I mean, promoting replications is also just a huge thing that we need to be doing in order to be able to tell like who's doing the good work in the field that we can really trust and who's doing the work that we don't know how they're getting this because no one else can get it. Huh. Yeah, I feel like I often hear something pretty different, which I think is a, it comes from a good place, which is we want to normalize replications. We want it to be non-threatening if somebody is replicating your work. Yeah, for sure. Right. But yeah, look, you're gone. Yeah. But, but I think you're right to say like, well, you know, especially if it's a pattern of lots of things not replicating, then we should have less confidence in that person's results. Yeah. No, exactly. Sorry. Yeah. Like you guys are making me talk about replication in the context of fraud, but that is not what I mostly think replications are for. So I think, I think 99% of replications should not, should not be about this. It's just that if, if somebody is serially committing fraud in a way that seems undetectable, the only way that I can envision that person's work being appropriately discredited is through, rep, through replications of many of their papers. But I want to be clear that fraud, like rep, replications are not, when I'm doing replications, I do not have fraud, fraud in mind when I'm doing replications, like almost ever. Um, I, I instead are, I, I'm instead trying to, you know, figure out whether the effect is, is really true. I'm, I'm not really trying to diagnose like what happened in the original study when I do replications. I'm just trying to like learn about the effect and, you know, what's the real effect size and, and yeah. So you mentioned data posting, which is one just super obvious thing that you can do yeah. to reduce fraud. And, and in fact, this uh, the example that we were talking about the PNAS paper, uh, the the uh, sign at the top, sign at the bottom paper, that was detected now because those data happen to be posted now, right? That's right. They were posted in April twenty twenty. Right. So you can imagine uh, an alternate universe where those data never happen to be posted publicly. Yep. And we just never discover the problems with that data set. Oh, exactly. Yeah, there's a 0% chance we would have discovered the problems with that data set if the data hadn't been posted. Yeah, there's no way. And that's true in so many of the cases I'm aware of. So imagine, you know, we, we do that. You get to wave your magic wand. Everybody has to post their data unless they have a really good reason not to. How much of the problem does that solve? <laughs> yeah, it's the first step, really. I mean, I do think there has to be, I think, I think there has to be some kind of like education that happens. 
so that people know what to look for. Like it can't, it can't just be a handful of people in the field who, who understand what fraud looks like and what p-hacking looks like. It's got to be that this is a part of PhD education. And frankly, the senior people in the field should have to, have to undergo some level of re-education every so, every so many years in order to like learn stuff. You know, like these are the people who are the editors and the reviewers and the gatekeepers. Like they should, I really do think that after tenure, you should be required to like retake statistics every two to three years. And, and I also think that there are other things that you can do. So in my field, so many studies are run, their online experiments run through the Qualtrics platform. And for those experiments, I mean, making sure that everybody involved in the study has full collaborator access to everything, I think would be a real uh, preventative of, of fraud. Because like, if someone else has access to the raw data, um, <laughs> you're probably going to be a lot less likely to commit uh, to commit fraud. In general, trying to make sure that our work is auditable, right? So like if you're not doing it on Qualtrics, like make, make sure that people are sort of leaving a trail for how data collection happened. You know, it happened on this date, it happened in this location. Like this idea that, you know, like the IRS doesn't audit everybody. It audits some random s- subset, and, but everyone's supposed to be auditable. And so the idea that our studies are auditable in some way, um, now we have to iron out the details around this. And I know this is a passion of Yuri's that he's, he's going to be thinking about for the, for the next couple of years um, to try to figure out how to make data a bit, how to make our research a bit more auditable. But um, yeah, I think we need to sort of go in that direction. But the data posting is like, is, is, is definitely step number one. And I think it, I think it will help a lot because I think it'll act as a deterrent um, for a lot of folks. Yeah. So, so if you could, have this magic wand and you make data posting mandatory, would you then use your magic wand to create data police? So do you think it would be nice for our field to have people who are specifically assigned to this role to randomly look at data and perhaps maybe they get less shit for doing so because this is literally their job? I haven't thought this through. Yeah, I haven't thought it fully through either. I mean, I, I have thought it through. I have thought about that a little bit, and I'm not quite sure where I stand on it. I mean, I, I do think that there's a right way to go about this and a wrong way to go about it. And, and I, I do, it, it is very important, especially around topics of fraud, that the people doing the policing are as professional about it as possible. And they have a really high threshold for publicly accusing anyone of anything. And so I think like you, if you're going to have that kind of police force, um, you also need that police force to be made up of, or, or you need to train that police force to make sure that they're just behaving appropriately. Like that you're, I mean, Again, on Data Collada, anytime we talk about someone's work, we give them a chance to give us feedback. And we and, and I would never like go on Twitter and be like, this finding looks suspicious. Like I would never, I would never in a million years do that. And I don't think we should be doing that kind of thing. Like people could really be harmed in cases where it's not suspicious at all. Like maybe you just missed a detail. Mm-hmm. And I think we have to really behave ourselves. And so if, if we're going to have some kind of police force, we need to do that. 
the, the appeal of a police force is like, it would be nice if there was somebody that had some kind of subpoena power mm-hmm. <laughs> mm. because universities don't seem like super interested in really getting to the bottom of everything, or at least, or at least if they, if they get to the bottom of it, they're not super interested in releasing the information yeah. to everyone. So we sort of know the full extent of it. It would be nice if there was some sort of separate investigative body that you could contact that basically had subpoena power and they could be like, Give me your Qualtrics files for these studies, <laughs> mm-hmm. and and I'm going to take a look. Yeah, like that kind of thing, because because right now it's, I mean I can it's, it's really really a terrible position to be in when you're trying to figure out like if someone did did something wrong or how to how to prove it. Like you don't have any power. You're like who do I trust? Can I can I go to co-authors and then not tip off the person? I mean mm-hmm. it's. It's, it's the Wild West, basically, and it sucks a lot. Um, so it would be nice if there was some kind of a separate investigative body. But I don't, I'm not holding my breath. I don't think that that's going to materialize. Mm-hmm. I guess the other thing you mentioned was um, consequences. You know, what, what happens to the person? Uh, and that's an important part of the, obviously, the incentives that, that somebody faces when they might be tempted to to make up some data. And it seems to me that with the exception of like maybe one person, maybe Diedrich, who really faced serious consequences, mostly the absolute worst thing that happens is you get fired. And it's like, oh, that's that's bad. Nobody wants to get fired, yeah. right? But mm-hmm. then you get some other job as a consultant or something. It's like, so yeah. even that is like, all right, well, if that's my worst, worst case, how bad is that really? Yeah. I mean, I am fine with that. Like, I don't want to be in the business of being like too punitive. Like I, I, mostly I just want these, I want fraudsters out of our field and I want fraudulent findings labeled as such. And I, so, so I'm fine with, I mean, you know, I, I don't, I don't understand fully the psychology of the fraudster. I haven't read Stoppel's book or anything. Um, but Sometimes even people engaging in conscious corruption, they sort of start from some desperate place and it snowballs and they wind up, you know, 20 years later having committed a bunch of fraud. Um, I mean, I'm fine with people having second chances and things like that. Um, I understand that that won't be an added deterrent. Like if your life was completely and utterly ruined, that might be an extra deterrent to not commit fraud. But I don't think people think about things in such a long-term way. So I don't think like if you saw like a lot like fraudsters' lives completely and utterly and irrevocably destroyed, they would actually decrease the probability of of fraud. I think I, I think losing your job is enough because I think that's a really scary thing to have happen. Like you know, you signed up for academia because you didn't want to have to think about, especially if you're already tenured, you didn't want to have to think about get like the real world and getting another job where you definitely won't have that kind of job security. And, the, and I imagine, I would imagine that even if you get this other job, you might be worried that they find out that you were a fraudster in your previous life. And, you know, I imagine it's not that great of an existence um, afterward. Like, it's something you have to deal with. You might have to tell your family. I mean, like, there's a lot of really bad, painful things that come of that. And I get, I get zero joy thinking about that. Um, so I think it's enough that people lose their jobs. Yeah, it's not just losing your job, right? It's also like... In in any case that people go public, like your your reputation is ruined in a very like, um, 
identity centric way, right? Like, yeah, I mean, you're exposed as a fraud. I think that that most people find that consequence, like a very upsetting consequence if you actually have to face it. So I agree with you that that probably people who are committing fraud don't really fully entertain that possibility. You know, my ex-wife Rachel one time told me that if I ever got caught faking data that she would divorce me. <laughs> then she just divorced me for other reasons, though. So. <laughs> uh, maybe she was hoping you would fake that. So that she, That's right. Easy, easy way easy out. out. Easy way out. Totally. Yeah. You sort of just said that you don't know what the psychology of a fraudster is, but I am curious what, um, what your speculations would be about people's motives. And, and I guess I have two things in, in mind when I ask that. And one is that in most of, or many of the fraud cases that I know about, um, like it seems like data is not always being completely fabricated from scratch. And so I guess, but maybe I'm wrong about the prevalence of these things, but if you had, if you had just asked me from the outset and I knew nothing about fraud cases, I guess I would have imagined that that's what it would look like. Um, it seems like the laziest, most efficient way to commit fraud or something like that. But it seems like in many cases, people aren't doing that. They're sort of doctoring data. And then, um, Yoel in our sort of like, uh, preparation notes, um, posted a data collada post. I think this is from a little while ago about reducing fraud. And this was Yuri's post. And Yuri talks about how he thinks that, um, it's not about incentives or at least altering the incentive structure is not the right solution. Um, which I mean, my reaction was that I disagree with that in part, or at least I imagine that, um, there are some cases of fraud where, and, and maybe Yuri wouldn't disagree with this, but where if people could get the exact same publication by just reporting their results as they were collected and nobody cared about significance or, um, you could get null findings published equally as easily as significant findings that, that fraud would be reduced. Um, but maybe I'm misunderstanding his point. Yeah. I, I haven't reread that in a while, but I, I think I would defend Yuri only in that, like, you're not going to, you're not going to meaningly, meaningfully affect the incentive structure. Like it's not really a lever that we have at our disposal other than if, if you count increasing the probability of being caught, then that's changing the incentive structure in some mm-hmm, ways. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that, that means like you're increasing the probability of punishment for doing it. But in terms of like what we get rewarded for in the field, I mean, I don't think that's going to meaningfully change. I mean, I'm not even on the, there's sort of the radical left camp in our field of everything should be publishable, even null findings, like mm-hmm. all null findings should be publishable. And I'm not in that camp. Right. Like, I think there's, I think so many null findings are null for completely uninteresting and uninformative reasons. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, yeah, I don't, I, I don't think, look, and, and, and even if you were like your job talk has still got to be of interest to people. Like it's not going to be interesting if you're like eating celery does not stop you from getting cancer or whatever. I mean, that's not like a thing that you can get. It's, 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 it's just, you know, standing on your head doesn't change how happy you are for whatever in the long term, whatever, like, yeah. um, none of that stuff is like, yeah, none, none of that stuff is, is interesting enough 
to get you hired. So I don't think we're ever, I don't think we're going to change the fact that you need to produce like a significant result that tells us something new about human beings in order to get, in, in order to get, you know, the rewards that this field provides. So I don't think it's just a lever that that's really available to us to, to move around. I guess when I imagine this like utopian world, I'm imagining a structure that like where registered reports are extremely prevalent. So, you know, if it were the case that like almost everything is published as as a registered report, I could imagine that, um, you know, people are rewarded for designing cool studies and they like become pretty agnostic about how they turn out because they're rewarded for the design part. Um, but that's, I agree that's very far from the world we live in. Yeah. I mean, the way I think about that is like, there's a subset of questions for our field where the answer is interesting no matter what. And that's awesome. Like if you, I love when I'm running a study where I'm like, if this, no matter what happens, this thing is interesting. Mm -hmm. And that's what, that that's where a lot of registered reports are. And I think it's awesome. I love registered reports for that reason. But there's also a subset of hypotheses where it's only interesting if something happens right. and it's not interesting or informative if nothing happens. So that that's why I don't think it's going to be a perfect fix, but you're right. Like, like rewarding people for registered reports and, and definitely, you know, promoting uh, the use of registered reports, maybe especially by young people would probably be, would probably be helpful because then you get a publication either way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like that. So Joe, thanks so much for joining us. This has been super informative. Any last words or anything you want to plug? Thank you. It was really a pleasure. Thanks for having me.